Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to our Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. I should specify, I said our, it's not our reading plan that we put together. It's a uh, it's a reading plan that happens to share a name with the podcast. Give credit where credit is due. Good job, Evan. Oh, yeah, I try. Uh, and we like to, as usual, make the invite. If you've got questions that come up uh, in any, really in any avenue of thought when it comes to, to, to biblical topics, we would love to take and field those questions uh, and try and provide as much answer and clarity as we possibly can. We're not always great because some of them are just not as clear as we want them to be. So there's two ways you can send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Or you can send us a direct message on the Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, and you can DM us there as well. All right. Well, this week we are, we're actually, we got a pretty full podcast ahead of you, beloved listeners. So we're going to- Yeah, there's, we're hitting four books this week. We're going to not- up two, starting two. We're going to not waste time. We're going to dive in. We're wrapping up Joshua and 2 Corinthians, and then we're kicking off Judges and Ephesians. So to wrap up Joshua- Let's talk about it. Uh, chapters 19 through 21 continue laying out the portions and divisions of the land from the different tribes. So this includes cities of refuge and the different areas for Levi. Uh, and remember, Levi, they don't have official land, or at least they don't have a region of land that is the tribe of Levi's land because their inheritance is the priesthood. So the, you, you can't be a priest in Israel unless you are a Levite or uh, you know, Melchizedek, that whole thing with Jesus. But, you know, for, for the vast majority... That, that's a Hebrews reference. We, we'll, we'll touch that when we get to Hebrews. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, for the people of Israel, their priests had to come from the tribe of Levi, but they are given specific areas, like not a whole region, but they're given certain cities and then certain allotments and things like that. So you'll find that in there as well. Uh, in chapter 22, we get the two and a half tribes. This is Reuben, Gad, and East Manasseh. Remember that they settled on the east side of the Jordan. And this is all the way back in, I think it was in Deuteronomy or maybe it was in Numbers. Dude, you said it without problem. Did I say, ah, oh, yes. That's called winning. Um, but they go, they settle on the east side of the Jordan. They're given God's blessing in this. But then Moses says, you know, when the time comes, you have to come and fight with the other tribes. You can't just stay home because you didn't have to fight for your land. And they're yeah, like- A bunch of lazies. Yeah. And so like, totally get it. And they do it. They, yes. they full on- they, they weren't really lazy. No, yeah. They, they spend six and a half years um, fighting alongside the other tribes to take hold of the land. And then Joshua is, you know, essentially he says, all right, well done. You can go back now. Uh, he blesses them. He says that they had fulfilled their old, the oaths that they had sworn to Moses and to the people of Israel. On the way back, they build an altar of imposing size, we're told. I loved, I just love that aside. <laughs> it's so true. They build an, an altar of imposing size. Uh, on the west side of the Jordan. So this is on the side that belongs to the other tribes. And then they cross the river and then they go back into their lands. Well, the west siders, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa building an altar besides the one at the tabernacle? What's happening here? And so they send over Phineas, the son of Eleazar, uh, to confront them. Eleazar being the son of Aaron, who is the high priest. So Fight, fight, fight. I, exactly. They're like, listen here, <laughs> East Manasseh, Reuben and Gad, <laughs> what do you think you're doing? And so here's what, here's what happens. Uh, it says, then the Reuben, sorry, then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, so this is after they've been confronted. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. So, you know, they're saying it twice just for emphasis there. He knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did it, or if we did so, 
offer to burn, oh my goodness, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to, in the time to come, your children might say to our children, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between you and us, you people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for the burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in the presence, in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought... If this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from the fo- from following the Lord and build an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before us in his tabernacle. When Phineas the priest... And the chiefs of the congregation and the heads of the families of Israel who were with him heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the people of Reuben that because that the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. All right, so that was a lot. Essentially what happens there is they build this altar and it, it's it's really interesting because it does kind of foreshadow what will happen with the tribes of Israel. Um, Reuben, Gad, and East Manasseh are concerned that as time goes on, just because of the boundary of the river, their descendants will drift away from the descendants of Israel proper. And then eventually they won't be allowed to come into Jerusalem and, and, and worship anymore. And so they build a, a replica of the altar in the tabernacle, essentially to be able to point to and say, no, no, look, this is the altar, the replica of the altar built by our fathers were the same as you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see it's especially after the split of Judah and Israel, that you have the Israelites who are no longer worshiping in Jerusalem anymore. Now they're worshiping in Samaria or the, the northern tribes of Israel, yeah. I should say. Um, and then even later, their descendants who are inter, intermarried with, uh, other, with other nations are the Samaritans. And the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other in the time of Jesus. So it, it is kind of a sad foreshadowing of what's to come. Not necessarily with these specific people groups, but we, we get to see the Seeds planted is the wrong word, but we get to kind of, like I said, a little bit of a foreshadowing of what would eventually happen. Uh, In chapters 23 through 24, we get Joshua's final words to the people of Israel. So this is similar to Moses at the the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, In 23, many... Years have passed since the whole since the whole altar kerfuffle. We'll say so. Uh, I think in the I think in the ESV Study Bible it estimates about twenty five years pass between that and then this moment. Uh, Joshua notes he's getting to the end of his life, um, which is interesting because he was he was told years before that you were old and advanced in age. So now he's really he's really getting up there. Uh, he summons the leaders of Israel to remind them to pass along what they have seen and to raise up the next generation. So like. So much of Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua has the same themes of don't repeat the faithlessness of that old generation, Um, which, I mean, it just looms large in the history, in all the history of Israel, that this generation 
that cried out for God's deliverance from Egypt is delivered by God and then loses faith so quickly. Um, and we see it repeated, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that a little bit later on in this podcast. Uh, but we also see it constantly hearkened back to uh, just kind of an example of the faithlessness that can that can arise in the people who follow God. Uh, and then in chapter, in chapter 24, Joshua leads a covenant renewal at Shechem, and all of Israel is reminded what Yahweh has done for his people. Uh, and this is also where we get some of the most famous lines in the book of Joshua. And it is uh, in 24, 14 through 15, it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, you know, I mean... I feel like a good 10% of Christian households have that on a wall somewhere. It's a very, it's not a, it. not it. Yeah. Not it's a it. very, very, very cool verse though. I love that. But so I do true. have to be strong and courageous on my, on my son's wall. There you so. go. That's a good, that's a good time. It's a good reminder for young Gideon who was not necessarily known for that. That's the the judge Gideon, not the, uh, the child Gideon. I'm not sure how courageous he is, but <laughs> uh, does he jump off? Things. Oh, dude, he's re- he's reckless. Oh, okay. Gideon means destroyer. I was telling my son this the other night. Gideon means destroyer of high places. That's what his name means. So Classic. He Gideon. loved it. He was like, yes. <laughs> so, I love destroying anyways, high places. Off topic. Uh, anyway, so, and also chapter 24 is just a really good recap yeah. of everything God's. And we get a few of those all throughout the, all throughout the different books. So, but it's a good thing to read through. Uh, and then finally, after all of this, the book of Joshua can, uh, concludes. So we're going to read the final few verses here. This is at the end of Joshua in chapter 24. It says, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaish. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the place of the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at at Gibeah, the town of Phineas, his son, which has been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. So there you go. So we kind of see in the same way that Joshua was the successor of Moses and he passes away. So does Eleazar, who is the successor of Aaron. He passes away as well. This kind of, it, uh, it's weird. Cause like I've been, I've been watching like a lot of world war II stuff recently. And so I think there is kind of like almost some parallel because we call them the greatest generation. And when you read about like some of the things they did is incredible. Like, and then so, but we're at the point where um, I remember when I was a kid that world war II veterans were very old men and now they're, they're almost all gone. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I was a kid, they were in the like mid seventies to eighties and now they're all pushing a hundred. And so there's very few left and yeah. we're kind of, I think we're at this point in our in our nation's history where we're seeing this older generation that accomplished something amazing begin to fade away, and I feel like that's what's happening with Israel here. Uh, obviously, to a, a lesser degree in in the U.S., but it just kind of made me think of that of watching you know Joshua and Eleazar and all these people, uh, you know, begin to begin to die off in this and making way for this new generation, which um, you know. It's not going to go. It's not going to go as well. But we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that here in a little bit, listeners. Um, as for now, we're going to jump into Second Corinthians. But before we do, we would uh, 
always like to remind you to leave us a five-star review just like, and I'm going to be honest here, uh, the person who left this review, I just thought it was a random assortment of letters and numbers. I had no nope. intention. Uh, Aaron I- I'm gonna take a, I'm going to take a stab at it. See what I did there? Read away. So I think uh, the username, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I think it's Shade Slayer, um, but it's SH4D3S143R. So I'm going to say it's Shade Slayer. Um, but anyways, he left us a review this last week, and so I just want to give him a quick shout out and uh, just read the review because it's kind of, it's always encouraging to me, and I hope it encourages you as well. Uh, but he says this, that I stumbled upon this podcast while I was cutting hay last year, got hooked. Nice pun. Uh, uh, I and, love it. And would listen to eight plus episodes a day. Uh, the guys do a great job of explaining biblical concepts and events while always going back to the Bible for answers. They always put God first and make sure you know it's all about God. I envy those of you who stumble upon it now because you have many hours of new episodes to listen to. Keep up the great work, Evan and Aaron, and God bless. Shade Slayer, thank you so much, man, for the review. We appreciate it. Um, and and maybe you're listening today and you've had a similar uh, fun moment with us, uh, just as you hear Evan and I banter back and forth and kind of share our heartbeat and passion about God's word. We would love for you to take a moment and leave us a review, uh, hit the five-star rating and leave a written review and uh, just continues to help get the algorithm and grow the community of, of us leading, reading the Bible together. So thank you so much, Shade Slayer. I hope that's how, the right uh, intent of your your username. Uh, if not, I'm going to blame Evan. So there you uh, go. But yes, Evan Evan did say we're jumping in and wrapping up not just Joshua, but also the book of Second Corinthians today. Um, and so uh, just as a quick reminder for Second Corinthians, it is a book of Paul rebuttaling and uh, reestablishing his authority as an apostle. You see this tone change from First Corinthians to Second Corinthians. Um, and as I mentioned last week, uh, towards the end of, uh, uh, of the reading that we had last week, we, we started seeing Paul shift his conversation, uh, his argument away from the Corinthian believers into these quote unquote super apostles. This is actually the section, uh, this section of 11 to 13, this is where he actually calls them out as super apostles, quote unquote. So, um, So chapter 11, we're going to find that he continues uh, this message, but then is directed very specifically to these quote unquote super apostles we see in verse five of chapter 11 here. Um, But he's going to, in the the first section of chapter 11, uh, the first 15 verses, we'll see that he compares uh, these super apostles to the serpent that deceived Eve, calls them false prophets and deceitful workers. Uh, He points out that he did not accept payment while in Corinth, that his motive for ministry is the expansion of the Christ kingdom, not payment or respect. Um, And you're going to see that as he lists out these accusations, not these accusations, sorry, these rebuttals, it's because he's caught wind of what he's accused of. And so he's just arguing back. You say that I'm uh, not taking payment because I have ulterior motives. No, I don't take payment because my motive is expanding the kingdom. Uh, And so you're going to see that in the first section here as he targets the super apostles in 11 and 12. Uh, In 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 16 to 21, you're going to find that the super apostles haven't claimed that Paul's hardships have actually invalidated his apostleship and made him look foolish. Uh, and now Paul takes time in this section to turn their arguments against them. He'll assume uh, that the role uh, of a fool to make them look foolish. This is one thing that Paul is very big on. Uh, he doesn't like boasting and you're going to see him boast over the next few things. But the whole point is to use their arguments against them. Uh, so he assumes the rule of, role of a fool uh, to make them look foolish uh, his dis- discussion here on hardships exposes that the, the super apostles uh, are people who are self-centered, that they could never demonstrate Paul and his companions' endurance uh, for the sake of bringing people to Christ and leading uh, a church in Jesus' way and teachings. In other words, they could never endure what Paul has endured for the sake of the gospel. There's selfish motives behind them. They would crumble in the midst of suffer- suffering. And Paul would say, 
the fact that I've endured is actually proving the, my validation as an apostle of Christ to build his church, to expand his kingdom. Uh, and he does that to, by supporting his claim. Paul shows and outlines how poorly uh, that these strong apostles have treated the Corinthians. Uh, and Paul has done the opposite for the Corinthians, even though he has been called weak. He he shows that these super apostles have kind of recoiled or looked down or kind of uh, created hardships on on the Corinthian believers. But Paul's like, no, 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 I've done nothing but care and love and and build and invest in them to, to respond to them. And again, it just reiterates his father's heart that we saw in 1 Corinthians carries over into 2 Corinthians as well. Um and then you're going to see Paul wrap up, you know, chapter 11 wraps up uh, with Paul launching into this boast of his achievements that I want to take a moment and read. Uh, and it says this in chapter 11, verse 22 to 33. Uh, and this is, again, rebuttaling uh, about achievements. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. And this is where you see for a moment, Paul like sidesteps and be like, I sound so dumb. Um, but it's, that's the point he's making is that this is what these super apostles were accusing him of. You don't have the achievements we have. And so Paul is, is looking like a fool to make them foolish. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm a better one with far more laborers regarding a servant of Christ with far more laborers, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. And then he continues to list this off. He says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, and dangers among false brothers. I just have this danger, 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 Paul, <laughs> come to my head uh, for all you Lost in Space fans out there. Um, he said, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is this daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And, and am I not weak? Who is made to stumble? And do I not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. And this is, this is important because this is a verse many of us know, right? We, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses. Paul talks about boasting as weaknesses. But what he is literally saying is everything he just listed, things that would validate him as an apostle with authority from a worldly standard, he's calling them weaknesses. He says, the God and father of Lord Jesus, who bless, who's blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. And he says, under Damascus, a ruler under King Eridus guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. He's talking about God's provision and God's leading and guiding and all of these things. But he, I love the fact that he, he begins to list off his resume. And he says, if I'm going to launch into the, the boasting of my achievements, but I place no high value on, he uses them to prove his point that even by the super apostles own standards, he is greater than they. Uh, and yet he suffers for the sake of Christ and the church, not for selfish motives. And so he wraps up chapter 11 with that boast because he is trying to create tension and at the same time, speak directly to these super apostles. Chapter 12 wraps up his argument towards the super apostles, uh, where he shifts his boast, quote unquote, to visions and revelations. Uh, and I'm going to read this passage real quick for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. He says, boasting is necessary, is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Again, Paul does not like this. This is not something Paul enjoys as boasting about what he's seen, what he has heard, and what he has endured. Paul's motivation was purely developing the, the gospel 
lifestyle and the churches he planted and the, the ability to build the church. That's what his goal and his heartbeat was for. Well, it is telling that one of the few times that we actually see Paul boast in those things is because it's a direct response to those attacks against other people. And so it's almost as if I think here what he's having to do is he's having to boast along the lines that the other, that the super apostles have created in order to show them, no, that's not valid. Now let's get back to the gospel yeah. here for a second. That's kind exactly. of what's happening. Yeah. And he, so he's adamant about, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. I've heard that said so many years throughout my church life. Um, but so that's what he's saying. So boasting is not necessary. He says in verse one of chapter 12, it is not profitable, but I'll move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago, whether he was in body or out of body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows was caught up into paradise. It's interesting that he repeats himself, um, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words without which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. Quick little side note, most scholars believe he's talking about himself, right. that he was the one called into the third heaven 14 years prior to this letter being written. Um, and he says, I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. Um, and why is he doing that? I mean, there's a possibility that it was a different Christian convert that he was that he had heard about this experience from. Uh, but most scholars believe it's actually Paul that had this experience. But again, Paul doesn't want to boast and build. Um, he doesn't want to build the kingdom on that. He wants to build the kingdom on Christ and Christ crucified and mm-hmm. resurrected. That's what he wants to. Um, and I think it's challenging for us today. I mean, all, the, the New Testament, Jesus was asked, show me a sign, show me a sign, show me a sign. And Jesus rebuked them for that. It's like, why your, your sign is not like, it's a sign of Jonah. I'll show you that. But the reality is G, the kingdom of God is built upon Christ and him crucified and resurrected and, and, in, and in turn reconciling humanity to, to God, the father. Um, and so Paul's adamant about this. He continues in verse six and says, for if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be, t- I would be telling the truth, but I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in my flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, so he shifts from the revelations, the visions he's seen, and sorry, he shifts from the visions that he's seen and experienced to now the revelations he's had. And so he has this thorn in his flesh where he pleads with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, referring to God saying, to Paul, my grace, actually it's Christ because it's in red letters. My, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Again, another verse, a lot of us know if we've been raised in church, it's a lot of, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a rallying cry verse. It's an inspirational verse and there's power behind it. Uh, but Paul is literally being told, Hey, you're going to, this thorn is not going to leave you. Um, think about the moments you've walked with a rock in your shoe and it's uncomfortable and you can't, you, you try and get it out. You, it doesn't imagine the shoe never being allowed to come off. And you have to walk with that rock in your shoe for the rest of your life. Paul's experiencing something like this. It's a very bad analogy, but it, it hits kind of where it needs to hit for us. Right. We're, ne- we're never told what this thorn in the side is. No, there's is, a lot of speculation, but. Well, and I think I actually, so, so I, I, you, you know me, I'm a big believer in like the parts of the Bible that aren't very clear. I can get kind of frustrated. I'm like, why won't you just tell us? Yeah, right. Uh, this one, I actually think it works really well yep. to keep it vague because I think, um, all we know is that it's some kind of a weakness for Paul. And when he's asked for it to be removed, God says, no, like my grace is sufficient for you. And I am more glorified through your work because of this shortcoming. And so not having it be named, I think that lets all of us 
put that on ourselves as well. Yeah. That there are things that we walk through, whether it's you know physical, emotional, spiritual, all these different things. Um, but it allows us to reframe how we see those things as a way of glorifying God that even in spite of my weaknesses, God is able to do things through me. And that's what Paul is seeing there as well. Yeah. And I think what it does is it helps take the focus off of me and places it back on the fact that I'm able to do what I can do by the grace of God, that I can endure as I'm enduring by the grace of God. And that it's not, because uh, oftentimes you're like, when, when we think of we're boasting, we're thinking like, I'm going to tell about my weaknesses and my problems and my my ailments, and God's going to use that to glorify his name. Yes, but it's not about you. And so that's the thing that Paul has has built his, his ministry on, is it's about Christ and him crucified. And even in this moment of transparency, where it's this deep revelation for him of like, I've, I've asked and pleaded this, this thorn in my flesh would be gone. And Christ responds that there's power and weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Then he says, so I take pleasure in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And I love the picture because as he's trying to create and, and establish and reestablish his authority as not just the apostle that has been called by God, been empowered by the Holy Spirit to build the church. He's also speaking very clearly to these super apostles and say, listen, because his heart, remember, his heart is a father's heart. His heart is to see even these super apostles turn back in repentance and and fall into alignment with the gospel. Um, so that's his heart behind is that God would be glorified. In it. And if it means he has to endure hardships, but Christ is going to magnify his name and, and, and increase his kingdom, then by all means, he'll boast in the fact that he's going to endure suffering and hardship. Uh, and so Paul shifts his boast to the visions and revelations. Um, and he, he, he has this profound moment where he encourages and, and in essence reestablishes his position that it's, it's about Christ again. It's about his kingdom. Uh, he continues verse 12 to wrap up his conclusion uh, to these super apostles. Um, <clears throat> he asserts that he has performed the signs of an apostle, reiterates that he was not a burden to the Corinthian church. Um, he continues to emphasize that he will not receive payment uh, from them as part, uh, as he prepares to visit them a third time. Um, and he claims that neither he nor his companions took advantage of them, but preached Christ in order to build up the believers in Corinth. That is, <clears throat> excuse me, that's his, that's his stance. That's his, his ministry method. Uh, and so he's, he's coming back to these super apostles who are accusing him or dis discrediting him. And he goes right back to him and says, everything you boast in, I can boast in better, but at the end of the day, our heart and our reality was to build up the church, not to be a burden, not to take financially, not to do anything else. The motive was simply Christ and him crucified and building his kingdom uh, and resurrection. So um, we shift at the end. He, he then shifts at the end. Like it's a last little, like uh, not a jab. It's a, uh, here's a few highlights. I mean, uh, encourage you to do these things. Um, and he, the way he said it is kind of to examine themselves, encourage the Corinthian believers to examine himself. He warns them that he will not spare anyone when he visits again, but hopes he doesn't have to act severely. This is the moment where, if you remember last week, we talked about um, Paul saying, you know, the, the, the accusations, like he's so, he's so harsh in his letters, but he's really nice in, in person. Paul is saying, he said, when I come back, I will have to act more severely but it's this last appeal in this first part of the last chapter say, I don't want to act severely. Please repent. Please turn back to the gospel and submit yourself to the authority of Christ. And then the authority that he's given me and empowered me to do it because I've, I now have proven to you that I am who God has called me to be. I am, I have the authority God's given me. Uh, and so he appeals to them. Please don't do that. Please don't make me act severely. I don't want to punish you. Uh, which sounds so like <laughs> this, this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> I've heard that before. Um, so anyway, so that's how Paul kind of starts wrapping up the letter. Uh, chapter th or 13, verses 11 to 13, he closes. He expresses his desire for the Corinthian believers to be united, which again, 
is united around Christ. And um, the drift happened when it was the message was not about Christ anymore. Uh, and so that's what he's calling them back to be united around Christ. He encourages them to seek restoration, to comfort one another, to live in peace. He then offers his benediction, which is very common for many of Pauline letters. Um, and he uses these terms um, of grace, love, and fellowship to emphasize uh, his concern for the reconciliation among uh, the believers. Uh, and he wraps up Second Corinthians and he stands... Um, he stands firm. He stands. He stands justified from his perspective. This is, this is the validation who I have, a, a validation of me from the call and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, so that wraps up Second Corinthians. So it's a really interesting book. I really enjoyed reading it a while ago because it was just this this total tone shift away from let me build the church up to like you know what all these accusations I'm going to rebuttal. So uh, yeah. it was a fun little piece. This is so dumb, but it just, it just reminded me of one of the few times as a child that I was able to, I don't remember if I got out of it or if I just lessened the severity of the punishment, but when I was in, in the middle of be, about to be spanked, uh, my dad dropped the line of this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I was like, I'm totally fine with switching if you want to. And then he just started laughing. And then I can't remember if I just got like one swat and then got sent or if it was just over at that point. But there you go, kids, you know, give it a shot one time. See, see, see how it goes. Oh, my gosh. Just kidding. Listen, my brother was that way. And then he just, my mom, he had to wait until my dad came home and my dad didn't laugh at stuff like that. Uh-oh. Well, it was more severe. Speaking of severe punishments, let's talk about judges. Yeah, uh, so the that's book, a good segue. The book of Judges covers it covers the period in Israel's history where there was no central government over the nation. Um, and so I wrote down essentially, if you've seen Parks and Rec, it's Ron Swanson's dream is what they're living in right now. All of the tribes are kind of ruling themselves, um, and then they're brought together under some central leadership when the time is necessary. But then other than that, they're kind of just doing their own thing. It's really it's really interesting, uh, and also. This is important to note, completely unlike any other nation in the world at this point, because that's going to come up later, that they're very different. Uh, during this period, each tribe essentially ruled over their own local region, following the law of Moses, and then when an emergency rose up, Yahweh would choose a judge to take care of it. Uh, the book seems to have been written around the reign of King David as a way to justify the monarchy in a way. Um, that's speculation, obviously. It's not like outright said it, but the way it's... it's so. Let's let you let's let you in, listeners. Here's a little bit of the interesting interplay between some of the books of the Bible. Um, when we read Samuel, the idea that Israel would reject Yahweh's rule as far as the period of the judges goes in favor of a king is very much a fall. It's very much a wrong thing they do. Uh, but then when you read through the book of Judges, it very much is like, here's all of the bad things that happened during the period of the Judges. And so both can be true. It can be a moral failure that the Israelites did not continue worshiping Yahweh and that they kept falling away and that they wanted a king. Um, but then it can also be true that the period of the Judges, the Israelites weren't exactly, um, you know, they weren't exactly keeping keeping the Ten Commandments, as, as we would say, especially the first one. <laughs> first couple. They were really, they were really shady on that one. Um, and so there's, that's kind of why a lot of scholars think that judges may have been written around the time of King David to remind the people of the history of what was happening. And the same with Ruth. We'll get into Ruth. I think we get into Ruth two weeks from now, next week, maybe. I don't remember. I didn't look ahead. So yeah, sorry, listeners. It's it, we're getting to Ruth soon. It'll be after judges. Uh, all right. So chapter one of judges deals with some of the conquests of Canaan that take place after the death of Joshua. So this is that next generation now is beginning to, to rise up. Uh, the tribes operate on their own. So 
and you'll see this because you know before it was the armies of Israel were going through and conquering, and now you see kind of individual tribes doing their thing. So Judah and Simeon make an alliance to help each other conquer their territories, and Judah, Judah, and Simeon's territories are very much intermixed. If you look at if you look at one of those fancy maps, you'll see that uh, in this war, Judah and Simeon captured Jerusalem, which is now part of Judah's territory. Hey. That's going to come up later. Um, you know, kind of an important <laughs> place. Uh, we also check in with Caleb, who is leading Judah during this time. So, hey, you know, Joshua, Eleazar, they're gone. Caleb, still kicking, at least for a little while. So he's a, he's a cool guy. Um, and he's he offers the hand of his daughter uh, to whoever takes Kiriath Sefer, which is just apparently a, a real thorn in the side. And so there's a guy named Othniel who's like, yeah, I can take it. So he takes an army, he takes it, and he marries uh, Akash is or Acha Acha. I don't know how to say her name. If we're being honest, Aixa. Aixa is that how you say it? Wow, that's a good one. Uh, name your daughters, Aixa. Uh, but we'll talk about him later. More on Othniel in a little bit. Uh, Benjamin fails to drive out the Jebusites from their territory. The house oh, of Benny. I know, seriously, the house of Joseph, which would be Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, they take Bethel. So hey. Good work. Good work. Uh, but then they fail to complete the rest of their conquests. So yeah, it's not looking good. Uh, and then Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan also failed to take hold of all their land. So come on, oh, man. man we're, we were starting so good. Judah and Simeon were crushing. Ephraim and Manasseh took Bethel, but then it kind of just, you know, quick. Wah, wah. Yeah, the roller coaster took a dive. Uh, so in light of these failures. It, it didn't come back up. It didn't, and it didn't. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in light of these failures, in chapter two, an angel speaking for Yahweh condemns Israel for not driving out these nations. And then this scene is presented with a flashback to Joshua and a sad statement on the state of the new generation that has followed. So sometimes this can be a little bit confusing in Judges because we just read that Joshua died. And the opening line of Judges, it's about how Joshua had just died. And then all of a sudden in chapter two, it says, and then Joshua b- brought the people of Israel together. So that is not, you know, the ghost of what? Joshua. That is not the ghost of Joshua. It is essentially, it's a copy of that with this failure of the generations to kind of show, hey, this is what Joshua said, and this is what we're doing right now. Not very cool. So, and that we get that in uh, chapter, Judges chapter two, verses eight through 15. It says, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110 years old. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim in the north of the mountains of Gaish. And all the generations were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Oof. That's a harsh line. Yep, it is. We just, we, we had our... Uh, our church just went to a men's conference, and I thought it was interesting because um, one of the speakers, this was one of the main lines, he was talking about the next generation and how this Judges 2.10 is just a real bummer of a verse. And so when I read it, immediately like just kind of, I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> this is a yeah. huge bummer. It said, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Um, and the Baals are essentially, for whatever reason, here's the deal. There's a lot of false gods. They're kind of everywhere. For whatever reason the people of Israel had a massive crush on Baal. He's like the one <laughs> that they keep going back to. Time. He had like six pack abs and was uh, muscular. Yeah. And I'm just kidding. You know, know, what are you going to do? He's a, uh, I don't know who the guy is today. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Yeah. Uh, he had nothing on Dwayne. There you go. Uh, and they, I, don't, I don't know. They abandoned Two the Lord. dudes talking about Dwayne the Rock. <laughs> they abandoned Sweet. the Lord, their God, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, um, which 
the Asherah poles, you'll see those come up. Those are a way of worshiping that goddess. Um, I don't remember what she's goddess of, but it's, it's a whole thing. Uh, and then we even she's eventually, the goddess of nothing. That's true. Yeah. Eventually we'll meet Molech, but that's not Yay. this. Yeah. Molech. Uh, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. That's because that's because that's what plunderers do. They plunder. Uh, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So remember, <laughs> Yay. When, when Yahweh is with Israel, there is basically nothing that cannot be accomplished. Yeah. Like Jericho, big walls, you can race a chariot across those puppies, no big deal. It's coming tumbling down. But as soon as God removes his hand, you get AI, right? And this is actually saying that God is working actively against the Israelites. So it's almost the opposite of where when God is with them, there's nothing they can't accomplish. When God is against them, they can't do anything. It's true. And so that's where we're at. It's heartbreaking. Yep. And that's where we get into uh, the period of the judges proper. And what I mean by that is this is when we actually start to meet some of those judges, the people that Yahweh raises up. Um, He allows great hardship to fall on his people. However, um, we hear time and time again that the Lord is Uh, slow to anger. And so when they repent, when they come back, when they cry out for deliverance, he is faithful and he provides a way out. So first up, we get Othniel. Hey. I know that name. (laughs) He married Caleb's daughter. Uh, So this is in Judges chapter three. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Cushan. I should have looked that one up. The king of Mesopotamia and the people of Israel (laughs) served Cushan for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So we'll ignore the family ties there. That's a little bit awkward, but hey, you know, it it's is just the way it, things happen. Different times. times. Uh, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel and he went out to war and the Lord gave Kushan, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say it. Rishathame, Kushan Rishathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, and the hand prevailed over Rishathium. It could be Kushan. Are you saying that with like confidence, or is that just what you're saying? They're saying it with confidence. You know that one? Oh my gosh! You just let me look the fool there. That was fun. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I I for all of uh, for all of my love of studying scripture, I De- really Deuteronomy. I really never Gethsemane? look up. Uh, I really never look up how to pronounce things. And it's one of my great shortcomings as a teacher. Uh, and so the land had rest for 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So there you go. So they, he delivers them. We don't get a ton of like... No, we don't. Yeah, it's, it's cool. I mean, Listen, some of these judges, we get a lot and it's a really rad story. Some judges, yep. we don't get much. Well, we're so. going gonna to talk about one of the ones that we get like nothing on. <laughs> that sounds awesome. But he's, in, he's here in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, after Othniel, the people of Israel, it says they have rest for 40 years, which essentially means that, hey, for 40 years, they're Peace. at least... Yeah, they're coming back. <clears throat> and we get this ebb and flow of the generations where when God delivers, they do at least for a little bit yeah. uh, return back to worshiping only Yahweh. Next up, we get Ehud or... You know, Ehud. Uh, another generation rises up and rejects Yahweh. This time, Eglon, the king of Moab, defeats Israel. And when they cry out for deliverance, Yahweh raises up Ehud, the lefty from Benjamin, Bargera. I don't know, I just gave him like a boxing name. Because uh, he's, it says that Ehud, son of uh, Gera, a left-handed man. So, you know, that was, apparently that was a really rare thing. 
back then. I remember when I was a kid. So I'm left-handed, by the way, listeners. That's uh, why he's so like. That's why he had this like, animated response. So. Oh yeah, Ehud the lefty he, from Benjamin Ehud is Bar-Gara. like one go-to in in the Bible as far as who he wants to be like when he grows up. When I was a kid, uh, I was still, and I'm not that old, but I was still apparently in that generation where your it was, soul is. Yeah, it was considered to be like a handicap to be left-handed. Handicap's a strong word. It was considered to be less ideal than being right. In ancient times, it was considered a handicap. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, back then it absolutely was. But I remember because I would, I would people would try to make me right-handed, like my parents and my teachers. <laughs> I still try, try to make them right-handed. Would try to make me right with my right hand. I'm like, I can't. No, I can't do this. Um, but yeah, Ehud, he does his whole thing, and he gets. Yeah, he goes in. He sneaks. He sneaks his dagger on the opposite thigh because apparently the king's guards just don't, they're not very thorough. So they just check the one thigh. No, for because a blade. everyone was right handed. Yeah. Left handed people were, were not considered fit for service, for protection, for any kind of warrior stuff. Yeah. And they were, most of them were, were left out in the wilderness to die, like let the gods deal with them. So so whenever they were searched, it was always the right side. Yeah. So. Or it was the left side, sorry, because that was where left the right. Left thigh, and you'd take it, yeah. you pull it from the right. Um, and so what would happen is they would search the, the left side only because that's where you, anybody who's a, a proper warrior would would have his 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 armor, his sword, his sword. So so he brought it into the left because he wasn't checked. So it wasn't there that their lack of thoroughness. It was the culture of the time, bro. Come yeah. on. Well, that's when everything changed. That's when it became like full body searches. No, here's, I'm just kidding. Here's what I'm saying. I I know it's the culture of the time, but as a guard, does it really kill you to check the other thigh? That's all you know. <laughs> <laughs> and if they if they checked. Eglon would still be with us today. That's not true. He would have died a long time it ago. It could have but... <laughs> killed you if, if the king saw you doing something. Why are you doing that? You're being stupid. Off of his head. Like, yeah. You could have. His, his right thigh. There was a process. <laughs> there, was, being an idiot. there was a protocol. So Anyway, yes. sorry. We're going way off the rails now. So we get this wonderful detail. This is one of my favorite <laughs> details that we get in the Bible. It says, and he, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone. This is Eglon. And he... Uh, alone in his cool roof chamber. And he says, and by the way, so it says cool roof chamber. It just means, you know, it's a bathroom. It's rad. It's cool. Uh, and he said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. I mean, that's a great line. And he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. His belly being the king, not Ehud's own belly. (laughs) I have a message message from God. Samurai. Uh, And the hilt went. Well, I misspoke. It's not his bathroom. That's where Ehud, anyways. Yeah, we'll see why. But he's he's sitting in a room that is is a pretty private place. And as far as his ability to calm down, relax, do whatever he wants, it's it's a room that's meant to be shaded and water. And and it's a comfort room kind of thing. Speaking of relaxing, uh, and the hilt went into his... Into went in after <laughs> the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. So his bowels relaxed a little bit there. Uh, then he went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. This is why Aaron's mind went to bathroom there. Yes. I uh, forgot and, about that little note. That and they piece. waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there laid their Lord dead on the floor. So it took, Ehud escapes essentially because they're like embarrassed to go in, um, which is really similar to how Stalin died, which a fun fact for you there. But like, he like- I didn't know that. So he collapses. He has this massive stroke. Joseph Stalin, by the way, dictator of of, of the Soviet Union, um, has a massive stroke and then he falls on the floor and- the, his his guards are too afraid to go in because they don't want to disturb him because he would because he kills people all yep. the time and so they waited I think for like twelve hours 
hours until like until it started to smell really bad. And it was the next morning. And so finally someone plucked up the courage to actually like go inside and they found him there. And it's like, it's a whole thing. So and there's there some go. similarities here. They, they weren't embarrassed because they didn't know what was happening. They they knew like you don't walk in on a king if he's relieving himself. You don't walk in on a king when he's right. exposed, when he's naked, whatever. Like there's certain protocols and propriety. Um, and so when they get to the point of embarrassment, it's like, um, it was just, yeah. So that's what it was. So they, there was this embarrassment of like, I don't want to, I don't want to walk in on my king because then I'm dead. So, so Ehud, the lefty from Benjamin Bargera delivers the people of, I shouldn't say delivers. He's, he judges the people of Israel with Yahweh's deliverance. So there you go. Next up we get Shamgar. Um, we get one verse on Shamgar and it says after him, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. The end. That's, dude, come on. That, that's, a, that's called the golf clap. Oh my gosh. That sounds awesome. We don't get any details on that. But I mean, so for, for a little bit of clarity, uh, an ox goad, because I wanted to look it up to see what, what, type of, what type of weapon are we talking about here? Essentially, it looks like a kind of a mini spear with a curved blade coming along the side of it as well. So kind of like a... I don't even know how you describe it, like a weird L at the very top. So it's a curved blade that's going horizontal and then a spear type thing. And you'd use it to poke along oxen while they're plowing fields and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I mean, Shamgar, he takes takes one of those and Damn just it. goes ham. Uh, I do also want to say like, this is very clearly supposed to be a miracle. Um, so sometimes like, I think we can read this and we can be like, and maybe we, I don't know, we watch Lord of the Rings too much or whatever it is, but like, you do like, this is clearly not, um, some guy And Shamgar was just such a great warrior that he was able to take on 600 people at the same time. No, no, no. This is like, clearly the spirit of the Lord is upon Shamgar. And this is a miracle that he's able to defeat as many Philistines. So after that, we're going to get to Deborah and Barak, which are the last two judges or the last judge and Barak that we'll talk about, uh, that we'll talk about today. Uh, Israel manages to make it 80 years after Ehud and Shamgar. So, hey. Listen, after that story, you better make it 80 that's years. That's true. So and they, after Shamgar, yeah, you better make it 80 years. Come that's on. like a full, that's a full on like life to death of an Israelite back then. They made it worshiping the Lord. So, hey, kudos, kudos to that generation or well two. Well done. Uh, but, you know, no, all good things must come to an end. <laughs> and so uh, I said, I wrote in notes, um, Israel manages to make it 80 years after Ehud before deciding to throw away their relationship with the creator of the universe again. Again. Um, this time it is Jabin, the king of Canaan, and he jumps on in. Uh, Deborah was acting as judge at this time. So, hey, some sweet lady power going on here as she was also a prophetess. So go, go, way to go, Deborah. Uh, she summons Barak and she reminds him that Yahweh has instructed him to go to war with Jabin's armies, but he was too much of a scaredy cat to go on his own. So Barak <laughs> is like, listen, I know that God has called me to do this, but I'm not going without you. And Deborah's like, okay, I mean, I'll go with you, but you're kind now, of- Now God's going to hand the victory over to a woman. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to exactly get all the glory here. And sucks so, to suck. Yeah. It sucks to suck, Barak. Uh, the armies are routed. And by the armies, I mean the armies of Jabin, which were led by Sisera. Uh, and that general, Sisera, flees. He finds refuge in the tent of Herber the Kenite, whose wife Jael promptly- Heber the Kenite. Heber? Uh, yeah, that's fair. Whose <laughs> wife Jael promptly does this. Uh, and Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside. He turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. That's, you know. To hide him. Like, wow. Come here. Let me hide you. 
And so Sarah's like, dude, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I really needed this. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink so I am thirsty, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and she gave him milk. Which Whoa. is better than water. Yeah, that's even, wow, this is awesome because there's some fat in there and I can get, you know, a little bit of, a little some calories as well. Uh, and then she covered him and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. All right. So, so Sarah goes Got to sleep. It. He's feeling good about himself. Uh, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then Wait, she, I see where this is going. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until Wait it went minute. down into the ground <laughs> while he was lying asleep from weariness. And so he died. I mean, I guess, you know, he died in his sleep. So there is, there is that. Uh, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, and I will show you the man who you were seeking. And so she went into her tent and there laid Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So, not, we know he's not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah he's not He's not moving. <laughs> uh, so on that day, God... I was referencing more the tent peg, keeping him to yeah. the ground. So. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, but he's dead, so he doesn't move either. So it's, it's, a, a, good du- it's a double fun. Uh, so, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So there you go. And then in Judges chapter five, we get the song of Deborah and Brock. Um, it's, yeah, it's some nice Hebrew poetry. You know me, I'm a sucker for I was some, really hoping you some, put it in here and sing it for us. Uh, no. Never mind. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for some good Hebrew poetry, mostly because you can't really sing it in English because a lot of that gets lost in translation. But it's, it's all about the victory that Yahweh had just delivered. Um, also, needless to say, they're big fans of JL. So she gets a whole she gets a whole section just to how she's awesome. Just about her. Yeah. Hey, way to go. So JL is a great name if you have a kid you want to name it. Honestly, Bolt, here's the deal. This this story, a lot of girl power going on. Deborah kind of calling Barack and I'm like, hey, come on. Like, this is what God's called you to do. And then JL, she's not, you know, she's not waiting for Barack to get there. She's taking this into her own hands. She's she's got a, a tent peg lying around. So good for them. And then next week we're going to be talking about you know, what happens after those judges. So yeah. it'll be a good time listening. Yeah, a little spoiler, it's going to be cyclical. So uh, it'll be fun to hit it again. <laughs> That's why so, they're called the cycles of the judges. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, we're also hitting and opening the, we're actually cranking through the majority of the book. I would say two thirds of the book of Ephesians this week. And so I want to kind of give us a quick overview. This is why I haven't said at the top of the episode where uh, it's a little bit longer podcast. Um, we just want to cover all of it. So Ephesians is a letter written by Paul. Uh, and he's writing to the church of Ephesus. Um, the thing I like about Ephesians, it's going to give us a, uh, a cosmic view of God's plans for the world. Um, and then, and that he's going to also explain the mystery of the gospel. Um, Paul is the author. Uh, we see actually Acts 19 documents, the story of Paul's, uh, journey to, to Ephesus, the region of Ephesus. Um, and it's really meant to be a circular letter. What I mean by that is it's not a letter that's written to a specific church like Corinthians. Corinthians was written to a specific church in Corinth. Uh, Ephesians is written more of a regional letter that's supposed to cycle through churches um, and so it doesn't have a specific church. Um, and really, the audience seems to be written mainly to a non-Jewish Christian audience. Um, and interesting, it can be it has a lot of similarities to uh, almost like a sermon uh, that's being written and spoke uh, as you see this message format. Uh, and what I mean by that is you can see it broken down in two very broad sections um, where you see chapters one through three, first half of the book. Uh, really talks and, and sets this theological stand or stage. Um, it, it kind of opens up with the theological section, and then the second section in chapters four through six uh, that we'll just start this week because we're going to go through chapter four before we hit five and six. Um, he builds upon that. So in essence, here's the truth. Uh, if I'm going to break it down as a pastor would write, here's the truth that I'm presenting, and here's how to live in light of that truth. And so that's kind of what you see with with uh, Ephesians uh, is you see this this setup. And so. Um, 
Jumping into this first section of the book, this theological setup, the story of the gospel, if you will, uh, a quick side note. I know this is you know uh, a, a great resource for, for many of you if you're looking for another great resource as far as kind of really having a very quick overview uh, of a book is The Bible Project. They actually have oh, yeah. uh, even an app that... Uh, literally can work through a very brief, here's a quick like nine minute introduction to the book of Ephesians. Uh, I kind of referenced that a little bit just to kind of shape my mind because total transparency, I left my study Bible at the office when I wrote my notes this morning. So I had to use other resources like Logos Bible Software. Thank you to Logos up in, up in Bellingham, by the way, that's where they started. So all of that to say, so this the whole idea of the first section there, side note, Bible Project is a great resource if you want to use it. Theological setup, uh, story of the gospel, chapter one, we see Paul, Paul Grazes grazes, praises God for his blessings. Um, he always starts off the letters with an introduction. Hi, we greet you. Uh, but then he shifts into this praise in verse 13 to 14 of chapter one. Uh, we're going to see that he, uh, I, I love, and I, there's part of me that really, I think we could do a lot of, of, of really deep dive learning into some of, uh, of the prayers of Paul, Pauline prayers. Uh, the way he writes prayers is so, is so deep and profound that I think is really, really good. And it's also shaped the way I even pray today. Uh, and so we see one of the first prayers in Ephesians is, is in chapter one, verse 15 to 23. I'm not going to read that because I want you to be able to read it. But the prayer in essence is, uh, that his readers would know the hope and glory and power of God. Um, so it's one of the prayers that he says, hey, and he says, as I think about you, I often pray for you and I pray that this. And so he kind of goes into a prayer. Uh, we see then uh, in cha chapter two, he's building this case about uh, the emphasize uh, that we've been made, made alive in Christ. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. It used to be my Wi-Fi home Wi-Fi password is two, uh, chapter Ephesians 2.8. Oh, yeah. um, and so this chapter, the section of the chapter is really, really profound. We're made alive in Christ. And so I'm going to read it because I'm biased and I like it. But it says this, And you were dead in your trespass and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, uh, referring to uh, our sinful natures. Uh, we too all, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we are dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in high heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from the work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time and for us to do. Uh, and I just think it's such a uh, such a beautifully powerful picture of of the the old like what Paul would say in First Corinthians actually is the new new becoming or the old becoming new. Sorry, uh, but it's this picture of apart from Christ, we're dead in our trespasses, we're dead in our sin, we're dead in our nature, and there's no hope and no life. And because of Jesus, now, there's now this life, there's this vibrancy um, that we can now live in light of. And it's not just for like selfish motives, so I get to enjoy life, but we see things differently. Um, and I, I liken it sometimes to uh, The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy, uh, when the movie shifts from black and white to color, that transition is so vibrant, is so uh, distractingly bold um, I, I almost, there is this tension in this thing in, in me where I sense that sh that should be similar to our lives as well. And when we have uh, conversion in, in faith in Christ, there is this life we're being, we're being made alive in, in Christ. And so uh, I love that passage of scripture. I love Paul's take on it as well. 
Um, he continues in uh, chapter two, where he hits this Jews and non-Jews are united into a new humanity. Uh, in other words, he's doing away with uh, boundaries as far as uh, segregation is not the right word, but there is this dividing line among humanity and Paul's doing away with this. He's saying that new humanity is, is we are God's image bearers. It's this tension that we, we live in. And so he's saying Jews and non-Jews, that was one of the most highly conflicting uh, realities of the time is this picture of Jew, Jewish people versus non-Jewish people, the Jews versus Gentiles. And so Paul is appealing because of Christ. Again, it goes back to the unity call in Second Corinthians, but because of Christ, we now live in a new truth and a new era. Uh, he speaks out in chapter three uh, about his own mission to proclaim the gospel. Um, and part of that, he invites people to be a part of that. Uh, the same thing, we're all ambassadors of Christ, that filter. Uh, and then we see in, in chapter three, I actually want to read this prayer. It's a prayer that believers will know the fullness of Christ's love. Uh, and so we see this in chapter three, verse 14 is, is where it starts. It says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches and glory and of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Not now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And it's one of those prayers. And this is kind of how Paul writes when he's writing a prayer. It's one of those prayers that's like, Lord, every bit of that, yes, please. Mm -hmm. um, Lord, every bit of that, yes, I want, I want that for my life. Let me understand the depth, the height, the width of your love. Um, and it's just this incredible moment of, of being caught up to that there's there's something deeper to be had as a follower of Jesus beyond what I currently know. And I love that about Pauline prayers. Uh, and so he prays that over believers. Uh, and that wraps up kind of his, the theological content of, of this letter. He, not that the other section doesn't have theological content, but it's, here's the truth. And now it's, this is what it looks like to start living. And Paul's going to hit that. He's going to start building upon the theology, um, how the story impacts how we lived. Um, and in, in, in essence, it's like this, in light of what I've just told you of the truth, Paul is now shifting to start urging. Uh, in chapter four, verses one through six, we reread, re and I'm going to read this for us. His, he reads uh, this. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is a verse that we should have held on to for many, many years. Um, and he says, continually, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. We find our unity as Christians in, in Christ alone. It's one. It's, and I love, I love the repetitive one that he says, because it's just this reminder for you and I, Paul's urging us as followers of Christ in light of the truth of the gospel to, to seek and fight for unity among the, uh, among believers, um, to not let things divide, to not let things conquer, not, to not let things become big issues and problematics, uh, problematic things that create division among us. We have to fight and seek for unity. Uh, and I love that, that reminder and challenge. It's even applicable to today. Um, well, I don't know about that. I think we're pretty unified across the board. Yeah. We're unified about the things we don't agree <laughs> on. So, <laughs> um, no, but yeah, it's, it's true. Like that, that's, I mean, the world we live in today, we've never been more divided as a, as a, as a body of faith. Um, 
And, and it's an unfortunate heartbreak for me. I mean, there's been eras I know, but as I think about the, I mean, I'm only 38 years old, uh, so I'm a, I'm really young still. Um, and there is this, this reality for me of man, like we, we've, we are so divided and fractured. Um, and I, and I think God's doing healing work and he's bringing our body back together, not to be like this, whatever, <laughs> like, uh, optimist or whatever, looking to the, the big picture. But, um, Paul urges based upon the gospel, based upon the build, the building of our lives on the hope and truth of Jesus, uh, that we need to seek unity. He also continues to use the gifts for ministry. Um, and the final thing he hits that we'll, we'll just, we'll begin to tap into at the end of, uh, this week is to put away their old life and live life by the spirit. Uh, and that bleeds into the, to the bulk of chapter five. And so we'll get into that next week and wrap up this book, but it really is a very practical book, a very, um, it's only six chapters, so you can probably read it within probably an hour or so if you were to sit and read it entirely um, and do it justice. But uh, that's that's kind of the book of Ephesians as we jump into it. Very quick kind of overview, but it is a very practical book that I think Paul walks you through in a, in a way that we can understand today as well. Um, so, But that's kind of how Ephesians will wrap up for us this week. There you be. Well, normally on a longer podcast, we would kind of cut it there, but we had a lot of good questions coming, so we want to Well, try this and... one was fun. I know you were yeah. and I were talking a little bit about it, so... So we want to do this question just to try and get through a few of them. And yeah, I had I actually had a lot of fun on this one. So uh, this came in and she says, I had a question about Elkanah and the actual offering portions he gave to his second wife, Hannah. Uh, this is something that my younger brother caught on caught on to and asked me, but I never got around to figuring it out. So I just thought I'd ask you guys. Hi. Thank you. Uh, the passage reads different for various translations. On the New King James and the Amplified, they both say that he gave Hannah a double portion in spite of her infertility. Infertility, However, the New Living Translation, and I don't remember what the GNT is, but that's another translation, say that he gave her only one portion because she was infertile. This seems to me a pretty big difference and that in actual event. So which one was it? Uh, thank you so much. Love your podcast. Well, hey, thank you. Thank you for sending in a question. All right. So you have stumbled upon a really interesting Hebrew conundrum in this passage. And so the reason for that is the root word for double here is APH. So I'm going to say AF, um, but it can be translated a bunch of ways. So if you look it up in your old trusty concordance, you'll see that it's translated as angry 251 times in the Old Testament. That's by far the most, um, but then it's translated as face or faces 15, nose 10, and then wrath Eight. So those are it's a it's a very wide variant word. Yes. Um. So because one of the points we are told is that Elkanah gives Hannah, and I should sorry, let me read the passage here really quick. This is in the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah his wife and to her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Okay, so Hannah's not able to have children. Elkanah uh, has pity on her, at least in most translations, this is how it reads. He has pity on her and he actually offers a double portion for her in spite of this. Uh, a couple translations do say it the opposite way, where he actually offers a lesser portion because of this. Um, so it is most commonly interpreted as literally, so this is literally what it would say, uh, one portion for two faces is what it, is what it says. And so when you bring that into modern English, the most common way to bring that into modern English is to say a double portion. So it's one portion that is enough for two faces. Um, so 
with all with all that to say, um, you could also interpret it as saying that Elkanah loved Hannah, but he gave her a lesser portion because of her lack of children. So if that af is being translated as not as faces, but it's being translated as anger, you can kind of jumble it around and get, and get it that way as well. Um, however, the vast majority of translations render this as a larger portion than normal. So either as a double portion or an honorable portion is what you most commonly see. Um, I ran it through, I think, 15 different translations, and there's only two that marked it out as being a lesser translation. And the rest of the translations that I went through said uh, that it was a, like I said, a double portion or an honorable portion, something along those lines. Um, so there's the answer to the question a little bit. It should, it, I think you could interpret it either way. Double seems to be the most common interpretation. That's mm-hmm. the one I would land on. Um, also because it says specifically he loves her. And so there's no real, that's not a controversial word. So yeah, there's not, ang- there's not anger in that, in that expression or interaction. Right. So it seems, it seems logical to use the faces translation of that. Um, the reason I want to say that this is another reason this question is really interesting is because it kind of gets at the the difficulties in translating things out of other languages. And so me, me, what me and Aaron were talking about is how a lot of the most difficult Bible passages to translate are difficult to translate, not because we don't know the words, but because we don't know the metaphor or the idiom that's being used. Yeah. And so to kind of give you an idea of it, you know, let's say when I was, when I was a middle schooler, uh, one of the things that was cool to say was the word tight. Like if something, if we thought something was cool, we would say it was tight. Um, but if you, let's say, imagine a hundred years from now and all you have to go off of is the English dictionary and you look up tight, what would it say? It would it would not say, cool is even a metaphor <laughs> in and of itself. Um, but it, it would just say like, yeah, it's something that's being stretched to the point where it's not very giving. And so when young people are saying that's tight, what would you interpret that as? You would interpret this saying, oh, stubborn. They're saying that something is, that someone is stubborn, not saying that They're someone. not movable. They're not flexible. They're not, yep. they're rigid. Yeah. It's the same thing with cool. Uh, which is a much more universally used word now. But if you're just going off of the basic translation of it, it is a metaphor. It's 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 saying that someone is, I don't even know how to describe what cool means without using the word cool. That's what's kind of crazy to me. But uh, cool. They're popular. Yeah, I guess. If, they're if, well known. There you go. If you looked up the word cool, what would it mean? It would be like lower temperatures. So if you, if you, fit, <laughs> yeah. so when you, if you went forward and translated it out, you would say, oh, this person is cold. And that's how you would bring it into mm-hmm. it. So it's it's an interesting point. I learned the other day that, you know, long time no see is actually a direct Chinese to English or I guess Mandarin to English translation of a saying. And so what it is, is it's actually taking those four words in Mandarin and instead of transliterating it, transliterating it into English, which would, which would be, I have not seen you for a long time. It actually, they just took the word straight up. So long time no see is actually what the words huh. And so, and it just goes to show you how differently languages work yeah. because to us, that is, it's not nonsense because we understand basically what it's saying, but that's not the way Germanic languages yeah. are structured. Um, and so when you go far away, especially like the East Asian languages, they're, they're so differently structured that even when you translate something directly from Mandarin to English, you have to do other things. Yeah, it's the same thing. You, with- you have to assume the interpretation. You have to assume the implications of the words and the, the, the phrasing that is used. And do it in a way that it's 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 relatable to the current culture, yeah. Uh, and that and that's a big thing. So and so with Hebrew, we have these two issues where a the language is structured differently, um, but b no one is alive today who was an ancient Hebrew, and so some of the metaphors and the things that we that would have been instantly recognizable to them when you say a portion for two faces, anyone reading that back in that day would immediately know, oh, this is what kind of portion we're talking about. Yeah. For us today, we have to look at a lot of context clues to try and figure it out, and so and there are some writings that we get from um, not 
not around the time that this would be written, but we do get writings of about, I would say, maybe 800 to 1,000 years later during the time of Christ and after that, where you have rabbis who are going through and translating things. So we do get... It's not like we only have our modern Western civilization yeah, glasses on. We do get other glasses, but it just goes to show you with some parts of the Bible, um, it can be difficult to translate specifically because they're using metaphors and idioms that we're not familiar with. Um, I wish I should, and even today we're not going to be familiar with. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just the nature of. I, I would just even say as a as a kind of a side note sidebar, like I think that that speaks to the the volume and the beauty of language in general, where it is developing, it's ongoing. It's never gonna it's never gonna arrive. Language is always changing, and words are always shifting meaning. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, is it's neither here nor there. To be honest with you, but. To understand what the words and int- mean and the intent behind them is a very, very, uh, really diligent tool to, to understand, especially as we read the Bible. Yeah. And this is a great thing where um, I should also point out that this is not an issue with major doctrines of the church. Like, yeah. It's not like... Very true. It's not like it's a coin flip as to whether or not Jesus is, is God. He either rose again or... No, no, yeah. They... Um, these are these are mostly uh, minor things. But like you, like the, our listener pointed out, it does change the story. Yes. And so it's kind of important. There's another one in Job where um, there's the famous passage where he says, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Um, but the other way you could translate it is behold, he slays me. I have no hope, which very, which is, it's, it, it gets at the same idea, which is two different from two different perspectives. Exactly. Yeah. It gets at the same idea that his only hope is in the Lord, but from one end, it's a despair side of that. And the other hand, it's a hopeful side of it. So you, you kind of get yeah. sections like that where, yeah, there you go. Well, so, and that's even real life. I mean, yeah. the hope, my hope doesn't change, but my circumstances dictate my, where my hope starts. So. Anyway, uh, but seriously, thank you. Yeah, great thought. Great <laughs> thank question. you, listener. It was just really fun to to dive into that specific question, but also just to kind of get to talk about, you know, language and how it works and stuff like yeah. that. So that was and, fun. Anyway, this has been a longer one. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. Uh, you can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially support the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.